I had the uh, good fortune when I was about 20 or 21, I forget, <coughs> of going with my family down to the British Virgin Islands and chartering a sailboat and sailing around the islands for a week. It was really unbelievable. Uh, we grew up on the water, and so we learned how to sail. We weren't probably the best sailors, and that kind of became a little more apparent when we were down in the Virgin Islands. It's actually a fairly easy place to sail. The, the winds aren't always strong. The seas are, are great. And, uh, but periodically throughout the week, they would have these squalls, and these squalls are these quick blasts of really just a storm, high winds, kind of slashing rain. And if you weren't prepared for it, it really began to reveal what kind of sail you were. And so uh, I, I'm, I tend to be a little bit of a, of, a, of a ninny with the storms, and so I'm thinking of dropping one of the sails, and that way we can navigate a little bit better. My other brothers wanted to go for the gusto and say, hey, we're going to sail through this one. Well, we, we're going up this uh, Sir Francis Drake Channel is this big channel between the islands, and uh, I remember sailing up there, and we see it coming, and we kind of prepare for it, kind of not, and when it comes on us, it comes on, this wind comes with a vengeance, right? And so we're trying to sail it out, and it was pushing us so far against, and we we're near the shoreline, it was pushing up against a reef. And I remember thinking, we're in deep trouble right now. And uh, we thought, we'll take the sails down. Well, when the, wind, when the sails are filled with wind, you aren't moving those. <clears throat> now, you can put the boat into the wind, which kind of helps a little bit, but at one point, we were on the, at the mast, and my brother and I trying to get these sails down, hugging the mast and each other, just figuring, we've got to ride this thing out. It was unbelievable. Now, what it showed me is, A, we weren't prepared. B, we really weren't the skilled seamen that we thought we were. And from the looks of the other boats around us, kind of the chuckle, the head down, you know, here are the, the, the Looney Tunes coming in on the boat that probably shouldn't have been rented to them because the way, the way they just sailed through that squall. But what it reminded me is that storm really put on display for us that we weren't the sailors we thought we were. And it was a real test of how we could or could not sail. Well, I'm excited about this passage because, you know, it really does reflect when we are in trials and tribulations and struggles, it does reveal what we think about God. It reveals something about the nature of our faith. When we look at these disciples, these new recruits of Jesus, they're following him and he leads them right into a storm and much is revealed about their faith. Now remember last week we talked about discipleship. Jesus is calling people to follow him and he's saying this. He says, foxes have holes and birds have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, if you want to follow me, I'm going to warn you, there will be hardships, struggles, and difficulties. And here, these men are following Jesus, and they're led right into the storm on the sea. That's what we're speaking about in Matthew 8, 23. That storm comes on the Sea of Galilee, and two things are going to happen. Their faith will be revealed as weak. But Christ is going to be revealed as strong and great. Now listen, a lot of preachers want to take this text and immediately speak to, he'll calm your storms. That's in there. I don't think that's the primary point. I think the primary point of the text is really holding up Christ and for us to say, what sort of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him, because he's not going to deliver us from every storm. We will go through storms. 
Every storm in your life won't be calmed. But who is he that can lead you through it? You know, Matthew has been at pains to try to portray Jesus as this great king. This great king with authority. We saw in the first four chapters of Matthew that he has an authority. He was the fulfillment of all the promises of God. We saw it in his birth, in his lineage. We see it in Herod trying to even kill him. We see it in his baptism. Then we see it, of course, in chapters 5, 6, and 7 in this teaching with authority. Jesus saying things like, I'm the light of the world. We saw it in chapter 8 with his authority over miracles. We're going to see it now in his authority over nature. We're going to see it next week in his authority over darkness. We'll see it the week following in his authority over forgiveness and exercising forgiveness as he wishes to. So Matthew's trying to portray us, to portray Jesus as this great and mighty king for us. So let's look in Matthew 8, 23, because knowing this Jesus is going to enable us to be faithful, persevering disciples. I think that's really the bulk of this passage. How are you and I to walk more perseveringly, more faithfully in the storms that we face, other than knowing this Jesus as he is? So let's read in Matthew 8, 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he, then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So the first thing we're going to see here is the revelation of faith. So what does the storm reveal about the faith of the disciples? What, is it, what do the storms reveal about our own faith? Right. So the first thing you have to understand, the Sea of Galilee, it's a lake, probably three miles across, seven miles long, sits 700 feet below sea level. It's kind of on this rift. The rift goes down through the Jordan River Valley, connects with the Dead Sea. Actually, it runs all the way to Africa. But as these warm airs come up from the desert region, they meet the cooler airs from Mount Hermon, which is a mountain about 9,200 feet, about 30 miles north of the lake. And so they meet at the Sea of Galilee, and it kicks up all kinds of turbulence. Now, the storm that we just read about, though, was not the typical storm that happens with cool and warm air coming together. And Matthew records the storm as a seismos in Greek. It's our word for seismic. It's kind of like this earthquake, this upheaval of water. In fact, the other Gospels, if you were to read in Luke and Mark, Luke, Luke says that the boat was hidden in the waves. So great. Now, it has been reported that on that Sea of Galilee, it's a shallow lake, which means it can be kicked up rather quickly. They can have waves as much as 15 feet high. Now, the boats they sailed in were not teeny little boats, but they could hold maybe a dozen, maybe a dozen plus a few men. But they weren't big boats by any stretch. And they were a shallow draft, which means they didn't have a deep hole. They they didn't go deep into the water, and so they're easily to shake or to even capsize. And so this is a tremendous storm. I want you to envision, we've been through hurricanes here. I mean, we know what the winds are like, those howling winds, when they're blowing so strong you can hardly communicate with the person next to you. 
I've sailed on the front end of a hurricane before, and it is incredibly terrifying. The wind is going si- the, the rain's going sideways. The wind is blowing. The sheets are being ripped. It's incredibly scary. You know that they were scared. They wake Jesus, and they only say three words in Greek. Lord, save, we're perishing. We're perishing is one word. These are experienced fishermen. I mean, they know how to sail on that lake. They've spent their lives there. I mean, they know how to handle dangerous conditions. And yet they're saying to him, save us, we're dying. They're convinced they're going to die. These men who followed Jesus, they, wanted to, they heard the gospel, they wanted to follow him, look what he leads them to. I mean, it's incredible how frightening it would be. Now, are we to see this storm as just, <laughs> sorry, bad luck, guys. You really had a bad string there. It says, behold, there arose a storm. I'd propose to you that I, I think Jesus brought the storm. As we're going to see, his command over the, the seas and the winds. I think he brought the storm. He brought the storm to reveal the faith of the disciples. Why would I say that? Well, notice what happens when they wake him. He doesn't calm the storm. He isn't even concerned about the storm. He says to them, why are you so afraid? He dresses the disciples first. He says, why are you so afraid? Why are you of so little faith? He's chiding them gently. He's rebuking them softly. But he's saying, why are you afraid? See, the disciples did have faith, and I believe it was a saving faith. But it was just little faith. They did run to him. They said, Lord, save. They know he could do it. But they said, we're perishing. They faltered in faith. They failed to understand Jesus, is what I would argue. They failed to understand Jesus. They failed to understand that he's the Messiah. I mean, one scholar of the 20th of the 19th century said this. He says, their sin lay not in seeking his help, but in the excess of terror, which they displayed in their counting it possible that the ship could sink with the Messiah on board. Another modern scholar wrote, they failed to see the mission of the Messiah could not be threatened by natural events or that God's plan of redemption promised from the beginning would be derailed by wind and sea. Think about it for a minute. God had already put his character on the line. He said back in Genesis 3.15 that the woman's going to have a seed, the seed's going to crush the head of the serpent. So good, what are we looking for? A seed, a son. We see that in Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. Through his seed, all the nations will be blessed. Right? We saw that in 22 as well. We see the promises to David. David, that seed of Abraham, that son that you'll have, will have a kingdom and it will be eternal. Nothing will ever destroy it. Great, we're looking for the king. Then in Isaiah, what do we read about? The virgin will give birth. He's going to be the prince of peace, the mighty God. He's going to bear our sins. Micah talks about the birthplace. The shepherd that's going to come, the servant we read about in Isaiah. There's one coming. God has rested all of his promises to bring about redemption for this world. All the hope that we need to deliver us from this dilemma of life, they all sit on that sun in the boat. And you think a boating accident is going to take the plan of God and bring it to the bottom of the sea? Really? Where is your faith? He's the Messiah. All of God's promises and plans and purposes sit on him. No wind, no storm is going to bring that boat down. But these trials, these adversities, they definitely rock us. We forget these things. We lose perspective. We begin to miss what we know to be true. 
I mean, I, I think, I mean, for the person here who is perhaps not a Christian, perhaps you're interested in the faith, but you're not a Christian, how do you handle the adversities and the trials of life? I mean, is it justification for you to not believe in God? In other words, because of the existence of trials and circumstances that are difficult, is that all you need to say, no, I don't believe in the existence of God? In other words, if you can be mad at a God that's so powerful that does these things, I mean, can he not be so powerful to do things that you don't understand? I mean, really, really the, the purposes of trials and adversities are often to expose us to the reality of our weakness, our vulnerability, our transience, our temporalness. It's really grace, if you think about it from an eternal perspective. It's grace for God to make us aware of our, of our frailty when we are so determined to be self-sufficient, self-reliant, independent. And he kind of wakes us up to it. But for the Christian here, I, I think for the Christian as well, I, we fall into this idea that trials are somehow at odds with God's love. We actually forget that trials are useful in the life of the Christian to reveal to us what we think about him and what we think about the Son. I think many of us are very confident in the strength of our faith. You know, Paul says in in 2 Corinthians 13, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. I think we do test ourselves, and we often test ourselves and grade ourselves and give ourselves very high marks. We are like Peter, if you will, who says, hey, even though everybody may depart from you, not me, I'll never leave you. And yet he leaves them that very night. So as Christians, we do have to recognize that the difficulties and the hard circumstances that we face have a purpose of kind of revealing things to us that we might not want to see or we might not be able to discern on our own. They do challenge our perspective, though. They challenge the way we look at life. If you were to read Mark's gospel in this same passage, when they woke him up, they said, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? See, I think for the Christian facing trials, we're not ready to doubt God's existence, but I think we do tend to doubt God's kindness and God's mercy. And we do ask him, don't you care that we're perishing? They woke Jesus, and what did Jesus say to them? It is interesting what he didn't say to them. He didn't empathize with them. He didn't sympathize with them. He didn't kind of put their heads on his shoulder and say, no, it's going to be better now. He challenges them. He says, why are you of little faith? In other words, it kind of reveals that we have a false premise of the Christian life, as if trials shouldn't come to us. See, many of us do attach God's love to the removal of trials. And if God loves us, we won't go through trials. I don't think that's true. I think that God can love us, bring us into trials, and sustain us in the trial, showing his power through the trial rather than just the removal of the trial. Charles Spurgeon, the great British and London preacher of the mid-19th century, writes this. He says, When we sail in Christ's company, we cannot assume we will always have fair weather, for great storms may toss the vessel which carries the Lord himself. And we must not expect to find the sea less boisterous around our little boat. If we go with Jesus, we must be content to fare as he fares. And when the waves are rough to him, they will be rough to us. It is by tempest and tossing that we shall come to land 
as he did before us. That's a fundamental truth of the Christian faith, that we don't want to tie God's love, that if he loves us, then we will not experience hardship. It's a false premise. Jesus could have said to him, what did you expect? He'll say later in John 16, in this world you'll have trouble, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And we're going to see this in how he responds. So for those of you right now, if you're struggling, I mean, you may be struggling in a marital conflict that is profound, and it has lasted, and it is troubling to you, it is hard, and you don't see a way out. You may be struggling with a health issue. Same type of dead-end situation. You've been in it, you've exercised faith, you've prayed, you've thought about it, you've got the counsel of your friends in, you're petitioning God, you're desperate, you're flying to God like we learned a couple weeks ago, and yet there's been no deliverance, there's been no change. Perhaps you're just in a personal grip with pornography or or alcoholism. I mean, it's grasped your wrist and it won't let go. And you're just beginning to think, does he care? Does Does he know? It's destroying my life. Is he unconcerned? Why isn't he delivering me? I mean, these questions come to all of us. We really begin to question God's good character because of the ongoing existence of trials and troubles. So what is... Jesus do for us in this situation? Well, if you see what he does, of course, he stands up and rebukes the wind and the waves. Now, he calms the seas. He does do that in this situation. But I think there's more here, and that's what I got to, at least in the beginning of the sermon, in, in the sense of I think he's showing himself more than he's removing this current obstacle. Because this current obstacle, folks, is going to be replaced by this obstacle, and it will be replaced by that obstacle. Now, I don't want that to discourage us. Why? Because he is with us. I mean, what's being revealed is Jesus. He stands up, which is remarkable, stand up in a boat like that. He stands up and rebukes the wind and the waves. Now, a couple things here. Matthew doesn't record his words. Mark does, though. And and the words are simply this, be still, or literally, be muzzled. Boom. And there's this deafening silence on that sea. Now, it's kind of a miracle within a miracle here because he rebukes the wind. And the wind just stops. Now, everybody knows that when the wind ceases, the waves will continue for a time. But he both rebukes the wind and the waves so that not just now, the sounds, it's dead silent and the water is like a pane of glass. It's like a mirror that you can look into and see your face. Instantly, It's flattened. I mean, now the disciples had seen some miracles, right? In the beginning of chapter 8, a leper was cleansed. That's not a small potato. I mean, that's significant. A a paralytic who was about to die was healed and and brought back. Peter's mother-in-law, Jesus touched her. She got up and was instantly healed from the fever. I mean, Jesus is displaying some power, but not like this. This is unique. I mean, this is really significant. This is like an epiphany. For the disciples, whoa! I mean, it's one thing. Maybe those other things were coincidences. But the wind was howling. We were in a trough of 15-foot waves, and now it's flat as a pancake. The disciples knew that only God can control the forces of nature. They knew it from the Bible. I mean, the Bible tells them in Psalm 65, God who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. Psalm 89, you rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Psalm 107, 
He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. All this is about God, and now Jesus has just done that. What are they thinking? God's in the boat with us. God is in the boat with us. This is unbelievable. What a revelation. I mean, Jesus is showing us a picture of his absolute divinity. Fully man sleeping the sleep of faith, and yet fully God, able to control all the forces of nature with his word, no less, with his word. He speaks a word, and nature submits and humbles itself under his word, with a word. This wasn't lost in the New Testament writers. This wasn't an unusual thought. In John chapter 1, John, in speaking of Jesus, says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, that is the word, Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians chapter 1. So he not only creates all things, but Jesus sustains all things by his word. We read this in Colossians. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you realize the the cells that make up your body are being held by him? That he is sustaining your existence by his word right now. That if for some reason or some cause he were to stop sustaining you, you would immediately cease to exist by his word. Hebrews says the same thing. In the last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. By his word, the universe is being upheld. I mean, think about it for a minute. I mean, this is, this is the man in the boat. This is Jesus. This is the one bringing a kingdom. He is clearly a glorious king. I mean, by his word, didn't he call Lazarus out? Come out. The dead flesh cannot fail to submit and obey Jesus. Wine, boom, water. Fermentation process, boom, immediately. But it just happens because he said it. Curses the fig tree, it's cursed. He speaks, and everything has to obey. Everything has to submit. Because he's the Lord of creation. It's incredible. This is the Jesus that we follow. This is the Jesus that's calling us, follow me. Birds have nests and foxes have holes. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. But let me tell you, don't think for a minute the Son of Man is not glorious beyond measure. That's what's being revealed here. It's not just the calming of your storms. My goodness, he's controlling all the storms. Every storm, every wind. He says, go, it goes. He says, stop, it stops. That's why the disciples are, are wondering. They're marveling. They say, what sort of man is this? They called him Lord when they appealed. They said, Lord, say. They had no idea he was the Lord of creation. They would have been sleeping in the boat with him. They would have been resting. It's interesting, in Psalm 3, 5, it speaks about David when he was being pursued by Absalom. He says, I sleep. He talks about the comfort of God in his sleep. Why? Because David knew he was the anointed king. Man can't threaten the anointed, and so he can sleep even though chased. Jesus could sleep in the boat, resting. It's a picture of faith right there. Even in the midst of storms, 
He is safe. Why? Because his father has a plan for him. And the father will let nothing happen to the son apart from achieving the purposes. And that's the same thing for the sons and daughters of God. Now, for the non-Christian here, this this is kind of a, a good passage for you to consider. See, many outside of the Christian faith look at Christians and will proclaim that we're arrogant or that we're bigoted in speaking about the uniqueness of Christ. Many think that when the Christian says Jesus is the only way to God, that we will only exclusively worship and follow Christ, that that is uncharitable to the other religions of the world. Well, this is why the Christian holds to the exclusivity of Christ. Muhammad didn't say, stop to the wind, and it stopped. Buddha didn't say, hush to the winds of the waters, and the waters just stop. There is no other person. There's no other, there's no other representative. There's no other leader of any religion that comes close to doing what Jesus does. This is why we hold to the exclusivity of Christ, because he's the God-man. There is no one like him. There never will be. He is the only one. I would say, though, that as a warning to the non-Christian, it's, the storm at the sea really does kind of, um, it kind of shows us a picture of another storm that will come one day. There's going to be a storm of God's wrath and fury that won't be the natural elements, but it will be his righteousness coming against a world at odds with him. And Jesus will not be coming to deliver from the storm. He will be coming to bring the storm. Revelation says that his word will come out of his mouth like a sword. And he will bring judgment to the nations. And all of those who stand opposed to him, who have not followed him, who have not sought him. And there's going to be a, a, a great day of wrath and judgment. And I would just call the, that, that, that if your heart And if you're beginning to think through the nature of your life before God, you're beginning to sense the the weight of sin on your soul and the separation that you have with God, you know, the satisfaction of, well, no, I was just here by a random series of events and I've been brought here and and life is just the way it is because it is the way it is, which never explains anything to me. But, But the reality of it is, if that has been satisfying to you for a time to explain your own existence... But now you're beginning to question that, and you're beginning to wonder, and, and you're, you're beginning to ask questions like, well, if that's the case, if I've just come here by a random series of events, then whether I love or whether I hate doesn't really matter. Whether I, uh, whether I do good or whether I do bad doesn't really matter, because in the end, you're just going to be a pile of dust in a box, so it doesn't matter. If you're beginning to question that, then I, I'd read through this text, pray through it, ask God to reveal himself to you. But for the Christian here, there's a response that I think Jesus is requiring us as disciples to follow. One is to rejoice with me, to rejoice in the fact that Jesus rescues our faith. You know, do you not feel your hearts kind of pulled with these disciples? Don't you feel like you might have done the same thing? I I mean, this idea of we have faith, but we really don't believe, like in Mark 9, the man who says, I believe, but help my unbelief. I love what Alexander McLaren, he was a Scottish preacher in the 19th century, he said this. He says, Christ yields to the cry of an imperfect faith and so strengthens it. 
If he did not, what would become of any of us? He does not quench the dimly burning wick, but tends it and feeds it with oil by his inward gifts and his answers to prayer till it burns up clear and smokeless, a faith without fear. That in this life, as you're following him, you as a disciple, the Christian, he's always meeting your imperfect faith with grace. It's really kind of God. He listens to the cries of his children. Cry to him. If you're, if you're wavering in faith, if you're struggling in discipleship, if you're having trouble believing that he is for you, ask him for grace. Plead with him. Do you not find it interesting that the howling winds of a storm did not wake him, but the cries of his followers did wake him? It's like you mothers, you know this. A train can go by the house and Carol could sleep. If the kids uttered a faint cry, she was right on it. She could hear it. He listens to the cries of his people. So cry to him. Ask him. Flee to him. Fly to him. Ask him for grace. He'll strengthen your faith. Nobody comes into the faith with this solid, mature, seasoned faith. We all are in this incremental process of growing. From glory to glory, we're being changed. That's the first thing. Respond with me and have joy over the graciousness of Jesus in meeting our imperfect faith with grace. But secondly, commit with me that Jesus is requiring us to live by faith and not fear in life. Jesus is calling us to faith in him as he displays himself. In other words, the faith he's calling for is not just salvation from hell. It's not just deliverance that when I die and I get sick, I don't have to fear about it. He's calling us to live by faith now. He's calling us to live without fear now. He's calling us to make sure that our faith is rightly rooted, not in a Christ of our making, but in a Christ that has been revealed to us. This is how Jesus has chosen to reveal himself. He has authority over sickness. He has authority over nature. He has authority over darkness. We don't need to fear those things. You see this played out perfectly in Peter's life. Peter's, I love Peter. This guy that comes out of a cannon before it's shot. He's all excited. He's always saying the wrong things. Here he is saying, listen, everybody else to depart you. I won't depart from you. He is completely us. But you see him change. You know, it's interesting. In in Acts chapter 12, uh, Herod had captured him and was going to execute him to give favor to the Jews because he was creating such a stir with the growing of Christianity in Jerusalem. If you read Acts 12, you'll see that he's in jail. He's going to be executed, probably by the sword the next day. And what is Peter doing? He's sleeping. He's sleeping. And the angel, remember the the town, a, a church of Jerusalem, was praying for his safety. And so God, by his grace, sends an angel to deliver him from the jail. And the angel has to shake him to wake him. He's so soundly sleeping. The one that was terrified in the boat watching Jesus sleep has now grown to now he can sleep before his own execution. He's committed. He understands this is the one we're serving. I have no fear. See, faith will push fear out. Fear will push faith out. We are a people that are growing with greater and greater faith and less and less fear. Thirdly, I would say the Christian responds to this with revering Christ with revering him. Charles Spurgeon makes the comment, he says, 
The disciples were wondering over Jesus. He should have been adoring Jesus. I mean, Jesus is, is worthy of your contemplation. Listen, the sports and the weather and the activities in the world and the Olympics, job performance, those things are all worthy of studying. I don't doubt, well, maybe some less than others. But clearly, he's worthy of contemplation. He's worthy of you taking time in the morning and focusing and thinking and meditating. What sort of man is this that he has called me to follow? him? Do you understand this sort of man that Jesus is? What's remarkable is it's not just the power that I'd ask you to meditate on. I would ask you to meditate on the kindness. And let me explain what I mean by this. You have this Jesus, right? who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself by becoming a servant. Okay, this is the power that you've seen. The power that he shared with God, that glory, that he rules all of creation, all the stars, all the nebula, everything is right now being suspended by his word. That's his power. And yet what does he come to do as the Son of Man? The Son of Man, as I explained last week, had kind of two meanings. One was, of course, to embrace and identify with humanity. And one was, of course, to display glory, and he's going to come with power and glory. But, but I, I want you to see that while he is shown as powerful here, his power is displayed to help disciples follow him, but he's leading them, and he's taking himself to a cross. How do I see the cross in this passage? Well, you know, it's interesting. In the Old Testament, you have the story of Jonah, right? Now, Jonah is a very interesting story because it parallels this story very closely. You have two men, both are in a boat. Both men in the boat are in a storm. Both men in the boat in the storm that it's getting to a position where people are going to die. Both situations, both men in the boats in the storm have sailors come to them pleading with them to save them because they're perishing. Literally the same language. You have both men in the boat with the storm. Both, by the way, are sleeping. Both are awakened by sailors who say that we're perishing, and both have divine intervention. There's a difference, though. In Jonah's story, Jonah says, throw me overboard and you'll be saved. Jesus isn't thrown overboard, but... In Matthew chapter 12, Matthew says, one who is greater than Jonah is here. Why? Well, because the throwing of Jonah overboard was a picture of Jesus laying down his life to save us from the storm of God's wrath and fury. You as the Christian, Jesus, he's a greater Jonah because of his willingness to, by his own authority, he says in John, I can lay my life down and I can take it up again. And he did lay it down for us. To take the full vent, fury, wrath of God, he absorbed it all. God was spent on punishing Christ for our sins. Thereby, whoever believes in Christ passes out of judgment into life. That's us. I mean, that is, a, that is a reason to revere him, not just for power, but for his mercy. His mercy is awful. It's awful in the sense of it's full of awe. It's almost a reckless mercy to save the likes of us. It's incredible 
When you see this scene, he displays his glory and power, and yet it's all for the purpose of saving us. I mean, is he not worthy to follow? Where in your life right now do you need to make adjustments that you're not following him, you're following your own designs, you're following your own dreams, you're following your own goals, even when they come cross-purposes with God? It's a beautiful passage. He's so great, he doesn't need to remove the storms, does he? He can lead us through them. If Christ is present with us, we can go through those storms. We don't have to fear storms. We don't have to demand deliverance. We don't have to hold God in contempt as not loving us when we go through trials and adversities. Why doesn't he deliver us? He's there with us. Let's take a few minutes and pray, and Elder will close us in a few minutes, but here's what I, here's what I want to orient your mind to. You've been, it has been declared to you the glory of Christ is revealed in this miracle. And Scripture is all about really two things, the revealing of God and then the response of man to that revelation. And so as Christ has been revealed in his glory to us, this is the fuel for discipleship, this Christ who controls the forces of nature, and yet he lays down his life to save his people. So let's take a few minutes and give thanks to him for this. Let's perhaps take uh, and give a word of confession over our failure to understand him in his full glory. I'm going to ask you, with the few minutes we have, to pray loudly. This doesn't work if we can't hear you. This is kind of a foretaste of heaven when we're speaking to God about his majesty. Speak loudly, speak briefly so that others can speak. And I would also say speak confidently. Don't be so concerned about how you sound. Be more concerned about what you say to him. I'll begin and an elder will close us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace that you've given to us and your son for revealing to us his dynamic power and yet his awful mercy. Father, overwhelm us with grace. Let us follow him with joy and satisfaction and happiness, even through the storms, not just in the removal of them. Pray in the name of Jesus.